WGN Wintrust Business Lunch, John Beaver, Financial Advisor, Phase 3 Advisory Services, a regular guest on this show, and today's another one of those days. Hi, John. Welcome back to the program. Hi, it's good to be here. Glad to be on and share what's going on in this market rally. Well, you know, it's funny because I was talking a little while ago about the state of the world, that 60% of voters don't think the U.S. is on the right track. And my opinion earlier was, I'm not exactly sure what that means, because I suggested that almost everything in the economy that you could hope for is, in fact, on the right track, that times are not bad. So I wonder what those people were talking about. That's a long way of saying, what are you talking about? So what they may be talking about is inflation, which is still here, but not as big of a problem as it was. So today we've got the market making new highs. That's on the S&P 500. And it's interesting because the S&P 500 is making new highs, but it's not. It depends on how you calculate it. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But in terms of the economy, yeah, it's actually in good shape right now. I think what people are feeling is they just go to the grocery store and their money doesn't go as far, and that really hurts. So uh, what happens to the market here with us? Well, with inflation, really having come under control, maybe not down to the 2% range that the Fed wants. We look around and look at other areas, and the biggest crack right now that we're seeing in the economy that could be a headwind for the stocks is business fixed investment just has gone nowhere. And every recession since World War II, except for COVID, was led by a drop in business fixed investment. So we're happy to see today the business survey, the NABE, actually showed uh, executives think that there is going to be an uptick in their capital spending this year. So that could keep this thing going and keep us into a soft landing scenario, which actually I didn't believe last year. I didn't think we would end up in a soft landing, but here we may be here. Business so, fixed investment, that means businesses investing capital resources into their companies? Yes, yes. And the reason it might have been a little slow in the last year is because it's turned so much attention to AI and looking for improvements mm-hmm. in their bottom line due to AI. Now, maybe a little early to look at that. Well, and we still have the Fed. Yeah, it, go ahead. It, but if you will, just comment on this. Uh, interest rates, too. I mean, I can imagine the businesses didn't want to borrow to improve their businesses if they were paying whatever the number was at the time. Exactly right. That's the other side of this. And the Fed has said, hey, don't get too excited about rate drops. They might not be here as soon as you think. Right now, the market's anticipating March. Sounds like the Fed is thinking more this summer. And here locally, uh, Goolsby, the uh, Chicago Fed president, uh, along with others, they're really trying to talk down these expectations for rate cuts this year from six, which is what's anticipated, to maybe three. But still, a rate cut is a rate cut, and that will be helpful for the economy. Okay, so that's not a headwind, is it? I mean, lower interest rates, businesses have pent up need maybe to improve their operations. So these are good things, right? That turns that into a good thing. Yeah, we don't need the six rate cuts. And I think that actually might be a mistake from an inflationary standpoint. So the the tailwinds are looking really good. And that's the, the inflation rate is getting more nominal. We'll have another reading at the end of this week on the PCE indicator, which is what the Fed really likes to watch for inflation. Jobless claims are still looking decent. They're not ticking up. Although I will say this, uh, we've had uh, the ADP uh, reports. We keep seeing revisions to the upside in the unemployment numbers, which is a little troubling, but it still stay on the whole. The numbers are low enough that that's not a problem at all. 
we got the 10-year yield that has backed up a little bit, but not very much. So it looks like maybe 4.5% is going to be that limit on the 10-year Treasury bond. And so that means we have the chance of maybe those coming down again. Our view is that by the end of the year, we may have mortgage rates down in the low sixes, which would, again, be good for the economy. Mm -hmm. So on the whole... Uh, there's a lot of other things we can look at on the positive side, but I think on the whole, we're looking at a generally positive year. But remember, it is an election year. That would lend one to think what? Volatility. So election years tend to be volatile for at least the first half of the year and uh, choppy, maybe even as long as nine months. But that volatility is your friend because it gives you opportunity to get into the market at a lower rate, very good for dollar cost averaging. And then after the election, sometimes even a month or two before the election, the market starts to heat back up again, kind of understanding what the results of the election are going to be. So that sounds like a negative for the market, but on the whole, election years do end up up by the end of the election year. Well, I'm curious, too. And despite some tailwinds, pardon me, headwinds, he uh, painted a somewhat optimistic picture about this year. What about all of the consumer debt out there? What's that going to do to the market? What's so that we going did to make do? a new, yeah, we made a new high at about $5 trillion. But think about this. If the economy is growing, consumer credit would also be growing. So it's not a problem yet. What we want to watch for is the default rate, and default rates are increasing. Uh, they're back up to the level of 2012, but they're not to a troubling level yet. So it's just something to keep an eye on. So probably still another year or two to go on the upside. What we do watch, which is interesting, is to see these uh, large cap, mega cap, the largest companies, versus the rest of the large cap market and the divergence that we've seen in performance there. It's actually pretty significant over the last year. Uh, meaning what? So um, let me describe it this way. So pick your favorite pie. Mine happens to be French silk. You're going to take that pie, you're going to cut it in half, two halves of this pie. So what we're looking at is the S&P 500 and what's called the S&P 500 cap weight, which means each company gets a slice of the pie based on how big the company is. So on the one half of the pie, you're going to cut that into 35 slices. On the other half of the pie, you're going to cut it to 465 slices. Now back to the half with 35 slices, your first company is going to get a slice of the pie that's 7% of the whole pie. The next one, 6%. The next one, about 4%, and so on and so forth. So the largest six companies make up a quarter of the pie. And that creates concentration risk in your portfolio if you have any S&P 500 funds. Now, that's the S&P that we quote that on your show here, that we use in the industry, that you see in your 401k statement, that are in your S&P 500 funds on your, uh, on your 401k statement. So you have a lot of concentration there into these six largest companies. And obviously, you know, the other half of the pie doesn't really count for much. It's the largest 50 companies that really make up the performance. This is really similar to what we had in the 1960s with the Nifty 50 craze. Mm. Well, here's what happens. There's another way to build this index, and that is to make each company an equal slice of the pie. And Invesco came up with this. Uh, they actually came up with a fund for this about 20 years ago. But this idea of equal weighting has been around for a long time. The equal weight S&P 500 beats the S&P cap weight over time. During the periods of time where it underperforms, the equal weight underperforms, it eventually catches up. 
And that period of underperformance can be as short as a year or two to about as long as four years. So we're in a period of time where there's an opportunity that's really easy. It's just statistical. And that would be to buy into the equal weight S&P 500 rather than the cap weight. Yeah, that sounds like they're due. Is it fair to ask what's the general economic health of those other 465 companies? Yeah, it's still pretty good. In fact, we still have healing that's taking place after COVID and even after the financial crisis. So we see the upside there as being better than the S&P 500 cap weight, and partly because of this large company concentration. Now, again, this might not turn for a year or two yet. We don't know when it's actually going to turn, but the time to buy is when you can get in on the cheaper level. And we see the same thing with small cap versus large cap. Generally, over time, small cap beats large cap. But we've got an extended period of time here where small companies have actually underperformed and are presenting a really good opportunity there. So don't forget S&P equal weight and small cap in your 401k. Well, John, I don't know that a lot of us know if we're doing that. I think we put money in one of those little boxes we checked with the HR person. You send us an email and I don't know if I'm doing that or not. John? So that's where you can call your advisor and ask your advisor, but also on many of the 401k, in fact, most of them, they'll actually uh, list these funds based on whether they're small cap, medium, or large cap. What you probably won't find is an S&P equal weight fund yet in the 401k plan. Well, what about that? Well, so what do I do about that? So you do that outside your 401k and your Roth IRA, which is a great idea because you get tax-free growth in your Roth IRA. Or even if you have to, outside of an IRA of any kind, just buy it in your name. Or if you've got joint accounts, buy it in a joint account because the gains there, if they uh, end up being long-term gains when you sell the position, are taxed at a lower rate. And where do I get one of those things? Just click on Schwab or one of those houses like that? Yeah, if you if you actually have a brokerage account, you can actually find it. You can actually talk to one of the representatives with that house and say, hey, tell me about the S&P 500 equal weight. Should I th- think it through further? That is, equal weight sounds like putting all of your eggs in all of those baskets, or should I target certain sectors within the S&P? So going into sectors, there's one sector I particularly like at this point in time in the cycle, and that is real estate investment trusts, REITs. Now, not the ones that, you know, you can't trade on the market. These would be ones that would be available on the market or in a mutual fund. In a rate cut environment, real estate typically performs quite well. And here we're talking about commercial real estate. When rates go up, that squeezes them because everybody's on on basically short-term loans in real estate. Every five years, you get a reset on your rate. So as rates come down, it actually creates a better environment for the companies that buy, own, and manage real estate. So that looks good as a good opportunity. There's been a big drop in their prices over the last year and a half. They have recovered some, but I think that's a good opportunity. And I still like energy Uh, right now out of favor because it's dropped in price, but I still like that opportunity and would continue to hold into that, into that region and doesn't really seem to be pricing in what's going on in the Red Sea. With three to six potential rate cuts this year, it just seems to me like the Fed doesn't want to whiplash the economy. Um, so wouldn't it make sense that they would be very conservative? They'd be closer to three rate cuts than six rate cuts. Absolutely. And Jay Powell, I understand his favorite book that's on his desk or on his shelf is Paul Volcker's book. And uh, basically his point was don't make a mistake on lowering rates too quickly. Keep at it until you beat inflation to death. 
So that is the thinking of Jay Powell, and it seems to be the thinking of most of the Fed governors since they've come out in the last couple of weeks talking down the idea of six rate cuts this year. And 2%, that's going to stay the target huh, for the inflation rate? Until they tell us otherwise, we have to believe what they say. Now, the question is, is that 2% or is that 2.9%? There's a big difference in this kind of an economy between 2 and 29 And the Fed wants to see persistency, which means probably at least six months at those, at those levels. And we're still not there. What are we, what, what's the trend been? I mean, I know it's gone down, but what are our numbers in the last few trends? How are we doing on that? Yeah, so now we've leveled out on the declines, and really one of the things that's holding this up is what's called rental equivalent in real estate. There's a lagging indicator there in how it affects real and how it affects the consumer price index and inflation. And uh, we, you know it's really hard to read, but it looks like there should be some downward trajectory in inflation just from that indicator alone over the next couple of months. So it looks like we will break the three percent barrier sometime in the next two to three readings. How will that be received? I think it will be received positively and uh, could continue to promote, you know, a general upward trend in the market, again, amidst volatility because it is an election year. So if I had to paint the best picture, I think we probably have a modest rally. March could be where we start to run into trouble. And that would be both from an inflation standpoint and the Fed not dropping rates. Yeah. And one last question for you, John. I got about 45 seconds left. But how important to all of this for the whole year is what happens on the real estate market? Rates come down and the properties start to turn again. Yeah, somewhat. I don't think as big as we think it is because already people have kind of adjusted to where rates are at right now. So if anything, just the least little drop in rates uh, should free up some more homes, get a few more people moving. But I don't think it's going to be huge because you still have a lot of retirees with mortgages at 2.9, that just don't want to go to anything else. So we have a lot of property that's waiting to be sold but might not be sold this year just yet. Financial Advisor Phase 3 Advisory Services, John Beaver. Nice to talk to you, John. Thanks for your insight. You're welcome. Looking forward to next time. Yeah, let's do it again. This is the Wintrust Business Lunch on WGN. Jim Dalkey's joining us now, the national editor at American Inno. And the Chicago link to that is chicagoinno.com. Okay, Jim, let's talk about your Inno Under 25, which is both very encouraging and depressing for those of us who didn't do anything remarkable at the age of 23. You know, John, we've, we've been putting this list together for the better part of a decade now, and I feel the exact same way. I'm so impressed by yeah. people who are so accomplished at, at 25 and younger. And yeah, you know, really, you know, we, we talk about, um, you know, the growth of, of startups and the health of, of a tech ecosystem and what will the future of, you know, Chicago's entrepreneurial, uh, you know, community look like. And, you know, one way to kind of measure that is, is, is the, the quality of the youngsters in the, in the pipeline, you know, who are the young people who are, who are building, who are working on the, uh, the, the next new promising um, businesses of tomorrow. And that's really what our, our, our list looks at here. So this is called NO under 25. We're looking at folks who are 25 years and younger here in Chicago who are operating in the local startup community and are doing some cool stuff. We've got some de- definitely interesting uh, and names and impressive folks on here. One, um, uh, the, the whole team of a startup called Rivet, uh, a bunch of 23-year-olds here. Um, this is an AI startup that works with up-and-coming musicians, helping you find uh, and connect with your audiences better. So this is an AI technology that will help kind of emerging musicians, um, you know, locate who might be a potential audience for them. And once you uh, identify who those users are, helps you better communicate with those, automate things like email and social media and really cool stuff. They landed about $500,000 
and funding uh, early last year. A really interesting startup here and just kind of an example of the, of the type of person you're going to find on this list. This was a startup rivet that started actually out of MIT in Boston back in uh, 2021 and relocated to Chicago to be a part of Chicago's both growing music scene uh, and it's kind of a consumer startup scene. You know, we talk often about startups like Cameo and Songfinch, who are these kind of fast growing, uh, you know, heavily venture backed music startups and entertainment startups in Chicago. And they saw Chicago as an opportunity to grow their business moving from Boston. And so I'm um, really cool company. Another one, um, the founder of uh, Tigo Tech, Chirag Goel, he's 23 years old as well. He has created a safer wall outlet. So essentially what this is, is a, uh, a magnetic wall outlet that eliminates any potential electrocution. So no fingers, no uh, utensils, nothing can go into this wall outlet here. It makes it super safe. They built their uh, company now uh, since launching and graduating in 2021 now to a 15-person team that's built Tigo Tech here in Chicago. This was a, a business that launched out of Northwestern University. So lots of university folks on this list, lots of up-and-comers, and, and folks definitely uh, that the Chicago Tech community should, should keep an eye on. These are young people working in the Chicago area? That's right. Yeah, everybody is kind of building their startups here in Chicago you know, working on, you know, uh, you know, we've got folks who are working for venture firms, uh, folks who are building kind of different community initiatives around gathering people around, uh, young folks around Chicago Tech. I think one thing that we saw, uh, you know, as the pandemic happened is that, you know, that community aspect was just harder to, to replicate in Chicago. All, a lot of the meetups, a lot of the community events really kind of weren't there during the pandemic. And there's lots of initiatives now um, that, that people are really getting behind to kind of get people back together and kind of build that entrepreneurial spirit. And, and that's definitely true among the younger cohort. I know that the players in Chicago are IIT, um, University of Illinois, Chicago, U of I and Urbana, a University of Chicago. But time and again, you see Northwestern's name next to these young people. And one other thing I'll just ask you to comment on, not just that it's Northwestern, but how many of the names look foreign born or at least their families are from Asia, uh, it appears. Um, are we uh, doing enough to tap the potential talents of people that are already from the United States uh, talk about where they're going to school or where they're coming to school and where their families are coming from? Yeah, it's a good question. And, you know, really kind of two of the, you know, the, the EDU powerhouses for, for startups in Chicago are the University of Chicago, the Booth School, and Northwestern's Kellogg. And certainly both of those programs attract you know, quite a few folks from outside of the country into those programs. They're very competitive programs. They're very highly ranked. And, um, you know, the, the proof is in the pudding. I mean, we see often a lot of the most successful um, startups in Chicago have come out of that program. Um, you know, you can look at companies like uh, Grubhub at the University of Chicago, uh, Braintree, for example, which is a, a startup that built uh, and acquired Venmo, uh, ultimately sold to PayPal for $800 million. So, you know, there's a lot of examples of uh, you know, companies in Chicago have, have grown and scaled and done really impressive things based out of those universities. And and certainly, um, you know, they're very competitive programs that, that attract not just people both in the United States, but also from abroad. You know, it's sort of like uh, one way to grow a team is to trade for other players or it's get them into your farm system and then build them up. And doesn't it seem like if we as a country or as a city can do or with our universities, get young people to come here, go to school here, make our schools competitive, give them a rich experience. Now they develop a program with their friends while they're in school or they come up with an idea. Now they're in the Chicago area. And suddenly we've 
got companies percolating from the ground up here in the city thanks to our university systems. That's exactly right. And I think keeping that talent here after they graduate is paramount. I mean, I think, I think that's what the, the university systems and, you know, you know, Chicago boosters have been, um, you know, working at for four years. And I think that was something, you know, that, that Chicago historically has, has not done a, a great job at, you know, we bring in all these, you know, big 10 uh, students all into the area and then sort of send them on their way uh, as they, you know, maybe get a degree at the university of Illinois and they build their startup out in Silicon Valley. I do think that it has changed uh, in recent years because there are more opportunities, especially in, in tech and startups and entrepreneurship here in Chicago than there were maybe, say, 15 years ago. And so I think that there's definitely been efforts made to make Chicago an attractive place, not just yeah. to go to school, but to you know build a career. The NO under 25 is a fascinating list. Two other things I want you to talk about. Roomba for snow removal. What is that? I know we could all have used this a couple weeks ago, right? This is a company actually out of Minnesota called Nivoso. It's a brand new startup. Speaking of under 25, this is a, a founder who's actually just 19 years old. He's built uh, this startup, Nivoso, which is, yes, essentially that, the Roomba for snow. Um, this is an autonomous snow-removing robot for your driveway. Um, a really cool device. I encourage you to check it out. Um, you know, this is a story that we had in our mini Inno site. Uh, and really what this, 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 this uh, robot does is it has a little brush on it and wheels, and it will uh, plow your driveway for you. Uh, I would not wait to, uh, you know, 12 inches on the ground. You need to keep this thing kind of closer to an inch or so. But really the idea is that it's working as the snow is falling in real time. And so hey, it keeps you inside nice and toasty warm while it's, out, while it's outside doing the dirty work. A South Florida company is among businesses researching solutions to the problem people have who have had long-term COVID and they've lost their sense of smell. What's the tech solution to this? Yeah, this is a company called Chirano Therapeutics. They raised, uh, just raised $9 million to develop what they say is, is a drug that treats post-viral smell loss. I think that was one of the you know, really interesting things that, that developed after the COVID pandemic is lots of people were losing their sense of taste and their sense of smell. According to one study, about 25% of American adults that were diagnosed with COVID in 2021 reported, reported just partial or no recovery of smell and taste loss. And so that's really what this startup, Chirano Therapeutics, is working on. Um, they say that they are developing uh, really the first tr- available treatment for folks experiencing long-term smell loss due to viral infection. Currently, there's no FDA-approved therapy to treat that. So really interesting here. And, uh, you know, kind of a different twist here is they're also uh, working on research for patients with Parkinson's disease who actually also uh, frequently lose their sense of smell and taste. So um, certainly, you know, we, we talk about long COVID and people are experiencing effects from COVID, you know, you know beyond just the, the one, two, three weeks. Um, you know, this is tackling once and one for folks who have lost their sense of smell. Jim Dalkey, the national editor at American Inno. Okay, you can read more at chicagoinno.com about all of this stuff. Nice to talk to you today, Jim. Thanks, John. More business news with Steve Grzanich. Start your timer. It's time for the Wintrust Business Minute, sharing Chicago's business news of the day. Riverwoods based Discover Financial Services is cutting 108 jobs in Illinois. The company filed notice of the layoffs with the state and says they'll happen in March. Discover says the job cuts are not part of a broader staff reduction, but rather targeted at several teams that are being eliminated. Discover had earlier announced the sale of its student loan business to focus on core banking products. 
Archer Daniels Midland shares fell sharply after the company announced the suspension of its chief financial officer as an investigation unfolds into the company's accounting practices. Shares fell as much as 18 percent earlier in the day, the biggest intraday drop in nearly 20 years. ADM has also cut its earnings outlook and will delay its fourth quarter earnings report. The accounting issue is connected to ADM's nutrition unit, but no specifics have been released. I'm Steve Grzanich, and that's your Wintrust Business Minute. Yes, sir. Let's begin with a question. What do Elon Musk and a farmer sitting on a John Deere in the middle of nowhere, Illinois, have in common? I'll tell you after I thank the Chevy Silverado and ChevyDriveChicago.com. There has never been a better time to put a Silverado in your toolbox. Okay, Elon Musk and the Illinois farmer on a John Deere, what do they have in common? Minus 10, 9, 8, Okay, seven, Elon Musk six, and the Illinois farmer five, on a John Deere, four, what do they have three, in common? 2, 1, ignition, and lift off the Falcon 9. That is how it sounds when Starlink satellites are launched into orbit by Musk's rocket company, SpaceX. There are more than 5,000 Starlinks in low orbit right now, providing Internet to areas around the world where it isn't otherwise available. That includes many parts of the United States. Roughly 30% of the country doesn't have Internet right now, mostly rural areas, including Illinois and the Midwest. And that's a problem for farmers who've laid out hundreds of thousands of dollars for these new John Deere tractors that are basically rolling computers that need internet connections. So John Deere has teamed up with SpaceX to give those tractor owners what they need. It's going to be impactful. This is going to allow them once and for all to trust the connectivity that they have in their area. That's Mike Cool. He's a senior product manager at John Deere. We're going to have the Starlink terminal on these machines for customers that want it, and it's going to provide that ubiquitous, that full, that full-fledged 24-7 real-time level of, of high-speed internet connectivity on those machines. Um, to connect them where they just haven't before. And he says the John Deere Starlink Internet not only is connected to tractors, it can help the farmer's entire operation. We can track that data across the entire field, right, and create a yield map for them at the end of the year. That's really their report card for how well they did. Right? And they can use that to make tweaks. The reason farmers buy these fancy new tractors is to improve their efficiency, and Cool says being as efficient as possible is critical. By 2050, there's going to be 10 billion people in this world. We're going to have to produce 50% more food on the same amount of land, if not less land, than we, than we are today. Speaking of food, I hope you enjoyed National Granola Day yesterday. And on the food calendar for today, it's National Blonde Brownie Day. I'm Steve Alexander. That's the business of food on 720 WGN. Right now, the wonderful Mark Sullivan will join us to talk about something we hear about all, all the time. Not all of us fully understand it, though, Mark, and that's uh, AI. Mark is the senior writer and author of Fast Company's AI Decoded newsletter at fastcompany.com. And your latest newsletter, or at least a, a recent one anyway, Mark, dug into the lawsuit filed by the New York Times against OpenAI. What's, what's it all about? Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, we Many of us have uh, already used ChatGPT, which uh, is surprisingly good at uh, creating text and writing email drafts and things like that. Um, but the way that they train these models that uh, that underpin and power these tools like ChatGPT is that they scrape a lot of data from the uh, open Internet. And um, then they allow these models to sort of process these data and try to make sense of some of the patterns in the words. 
And, um, you know, by doing that, they kind of develop an understanding of, of our language and how it's used and what word might come next in a sentence. Um, but increasingly this year, the people that own the content that, that was taken to train these models have, uh, have been filing complaints. And uh, the New York Times is saying, hey, this company, you know, took a bunch of our valuable reporting and reviews and how to's and used it to train their model, and they didn't ask permission or compensate us. Yeah. Was there something unique at the heart of uh, the Times argument? Yeah, it, it is, because this is definitely the, the biggest uh, uh, company and the one with the most standing that has filed suit. The other ones have been suits against uh, people who publish books or artists suing uh, AIs that generate images. But this is the first one about sort of general news content. And, you know, somebody with the, uh, a name like the New York Times, you know, it kind of sets this up as something that might potentially be sort of a landmark case that kind of sets some of the rules or helps set some of the rules that both copyright holders and AI companies have to play by. Yeah, I can't imagine OpenAI was surprised by this. They, I mean, they've been stealing the Times uh, content, or, or, or were they? Well, um, you know, that's a good question, and it, it, uh, it's not quite as simple as it may seem on the surface. There's a uh, statute in our uh, uh, copyright law about fair use that, you know, allows companies like OpenAI uh, to use uh, copyrighted content in certain ways, um, but they have to play by those rules so that they don't infringe. And what OpenAI is saying is that uh, the way that we're using this is, you know, to train our models and not to duplicate what uh, the the New York Times is selling on on their website, for example, uh, but that's what that's going to be what the lawyers are going to be uh, arguing about in in the case. Uh, the New York Times lawyers are going to say, "Well, uh, look at these examples that we have here, where where uh, ChatGPT generated uh, answers to user questions uh, that look almost exactly like uh, New York Times articles." So that's, that's, they're going to have to pick through those issues. Yeah. Might this just be the opening round of a negotiation where the Times ends up uh, retaining some ownership of the content or at least is paid for it? Oh, very definitely. I, I think the New York Times has a, a very strong uh, position here. And uh, the backstory here is that the two had already been talking. Uh, OpenAI has already struck agreements with certain uh, publishers to use their copyrighted content for, for training. What I su- uh, suspect is that a lot of times, you know, it, it's only when things really break down and something goes wrong that, that, that the, you know, the, it ends up in the courts. And I think that, I think that they were disagreeing over the terms of what open AI was willing to pay the New York times for this. And I, I think that's how this ended up in, uh, on the front pages. All right. Well, uh, no doubt we're going to hear a lot more about this. You also wrote, uh, we don't have much time to get into it. In fact, we have no time mm-hmm. to get into it. But you uh, talked about the mm-hmm. AI device that you can wear on your lapel. That's uh, that's really interesting. We can uh, You can read that uh, in Mark's uh, newsletter 
fastcompany.com, right, Mark? Uh, yeah, AI Decoded. Thank you.